Turn to Joshua chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, I, I do hope you might use one of the chairback Bibles that should be in front of you, and we'll find tonight's text on page 185. We want to look tonight at this amazing story of God suspending the sun in the sky in another battle in the book of Joshua, as we want to look at the first 15 verses of Joshua uh, chapter 10. So let me uh, read those verses for us and pray once again for our time, and, and then we will continue tonight. So do listen as God is speaking to you, even now through His wonderful Word. As soon as Adonizedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because its warriors were greater then I, so Adonazedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoam, king of Hebron, and Piram, king of Jarmuth, and Japhia, king of Lachish, and Debir, king of Eglong, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, and the king of Jarmuth, and the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon gathered their forces and went up against all the armies, and encamped against Gibeon, and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly, and save us, and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, and he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall come and stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal, and the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, and chased them by the way of the ascent of Bet Haran, and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Bet Huron, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. And there were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. And at that time Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Aijalon. The sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's pray once again together. Father, we are grateful that you do speak to us by your word of covenant. We are grateful that you are the God of war who fights on behalf of your people and that in Jesus Christ you have triumphed over the forces of sin, Satan, and death and help us, even in this wonderful story of old, to know something of, of his intercession and mediation for us. And we pray it in his name. Amen. And you may be seated. 
I think I've told many of you before how in those years early on in our marriage and before we had children, uh, when Emily would be away working at the hospital at night where she served as a NICU nurse, I had uh, many nightly hours throughout the week to occupy. And at that time, I quickly began to amass this a growing collection of World War II books. And if you kind of looked at the collection at home, you'd see that a few of those would belong to something like an academic monograph. Some of them would be notable biographies from major figures in the World War II years. But the vast majority would fall into this category that you could simply call the genre of popular history as it's trying to unfold, you know, the glories and the tragedies of World War II. And one of those books had its genesis on a day in 1944. Nine. It was a journalist named Cornelius Ryan who found himself standing on the Normandy shores and he was there standing on the sand and looking over the water and thinking about the D-Day's battles from you know, some years before and he decided in that moment that he wanted to devote the next period of his life to writing what he trusted would be a definitive account, popular level account uh, of D-Day and so he set to work and he worked for 10 years straight. And in 1959, he published a book that in that genre not only became a bestseller, but it became an instant classic. It was titled, The Longest Day. And what we come to in Joshua chapter 10 tonight is the longest day in the nation of Israel's history, quite literally, as it's the battle of the longest day, when in response to Joshua's request, the Lord suspends the sun in the sky so that his people might triumph in totality over their enemies. And if you weren't with us last week, as we've continued in our study through these Old Testament stories that give us with perhaps some unusual depiction of beauty and splendor, a shadow of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament scriptures. We, we looked last week, didn't we, at the battle of Jericho in, in Joshua chapter 6 and even the back end of, of chapter 5. And uh, we saw that finally, at long last, after hundreds and hundreds of years, uh, God had made good to his promise to his people to give them the promised land. They had finally crossed the Jordan River. They were in the promised land. Now it belonged to them to, by faith, enjoy the conquest of Canaan. And that conquest was to begin there at Jericho. And we notice there that God fought for his people as the walls came crumbling down. And where we are tonight in the story of Joshua, as we pick up the account after the fall of Jericho, after Israel has dealt with the sin of a man named Achan, after Israel has conquered this great city of Ai, after Israel has renewed the covenant with Yahweh, and just previous to this chapter, after they had somewhat deceptively been deceived into this treaty with the city of Gibeon, which is going to come into play in our text tonight. So it's another text in a book all about conquests, thus another text that's all about a battle. And kids, I, I assume that many of you would probably know this old Sunday school jingle called I'm in the Lord's Army. Now, you might know how the verse goes. I may never what? March in the infantry, ride in the cavalry, shoot the artillery. I may not fly over the enemy, but I'm in the Lord's Army. Yes, sir. And if you know that Sunday school jingle, you, you know a song that has a lot of truth in it. But to come to Jesus Christ in faith is to be summarily enlisted into his army. 
to join in the greatest battle that the ages in the universe will ever see that the Apostle Paul tells us. It's not a battle against flesh and blood, is it? But it is a battle nonetheless against the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against those authorities that strive against Jesus Christ and his people. And while I want you to see tonight that, of course, none of us are going to wake up on a day this week and have to fight the battle of the five kings, all of us are going to wake up, should the Lord tarry and grant us another week. Wake up, and we're going to face a battle. Wake up, and we're going to have to fight. And the best weapon that Joshua had in the fight is the best weapon that you likewise have in your fight this week. Because in a way we want to see by the end, this is a story, of course, about the battle with the five kings. But as the text is going to unfold for us, it is actually, and as our theme is going to unfold tonight, a story about prayer. It's less a story about fighting in battle, although we're going to remark on a few of those things. This is primarily a story about prayer. So I want us to walk through these 15 verses with uh, three simple headings to guide our way. First, we're going to notice Israel's renown. And then we're going to notice God's reassurance. And at the very end, Joshua's request. So first of all, Israel's renown. Look again at verse 1 and 2. The king of Jerusalem had heard how Joshua had captured Ai and devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly. So you do need to know something about what happened in the chapter before. If you just glance back to chapter 9, if your Bible is anything like mine, you might have a title that says something like the Gibeonite Deception. It was there that the lands there or the people in Canaan had heard about this sovereign power, this unstoppable might that belonged to the nation of Israel. Before they came and saw the walls of Jericho crumbling down, we know that even all the hearts of the people there in Jericho were melting before the power of Israel. The walls come crumbling down and the renown and reputation only increases. They soon take this major city of Ai. And not only is the renown increasing, people are now beginning to fear whether or not they should even fight the Israelites. And so in chapter 9, the Gibeonites go about this deception by way of they strike a covenant with Israel. The Gibeonites who are supposed to be destroyed... They strike a covenant with Israel, and you'll see in verse 27 of chapter 9 that Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord, which they continue to be to the writing of this book. But the king of Jerusalem doesn't fear the Gibeonites' woodcutting power. He fears the fact that these men are skilled with implements of wooden warfare, Because you look at the end of verse 2, it says that these men, this city was greater than I, and all of its men were warriors. The reputation of Israel has gone out. They have now become an ally with this great Gibeonite army. And the king of Jerusalem decides, we can't let Israel have any ally here in Canaan. So if you look at verse 3, you'll see that he calls upon four other kings in the area and says, we need to make war against Gibeon. And then we're told in verse 4, the request was come up to me and help me and let us strike Gibeon. Let's deal with Israel's ally. And so off they began to march towards Gibeon. So that's Israel's renown. Now I want you to see in verse 6 through 11. 
God's reassurance. And because the call for aid from Gibeon goes up, you'll see verse 6. The request to Joshua is, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered Against us. And that call for aid to Joshua leads to Yahweh's command to Joshua. Notice verse 8. He simply says to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Now, students, you always want to know with, with Joshua, this is a book of conquest. As such, there's a, a spiritual theme. Uh, we might say a spiritual application that belongs to countless passages in Joshua, and it's that spiritual theme and application of, of courage. It showed up four times in the first chapter of Joshua alone, as God said to Joshua, be strong and courageous. And then you might remember from last week, before Joshua and the forces of Israel, they marched up to Jericho, the Lord spoke with his commander there before Joshua and said, Do not fear, I have given Jericho into your hands. Now, if you went back later on tonight and looked at previous chapters, before Israel made war on the great city of Ai, the Lord came to Joshua and said, Do not fear, I have given Ai and its king into your hands. And now before the battle with the five armies, he says, doesn't he, the exact same thing, Do not fear, I have given them into your hands. And kids, uh, you, you need to know that the most common command in Scripture is either do not fear or kind of its twin, don't be afraid. That what belongs to even the condition perpetually of God's chosen people is they can easily be a fearful bunch. You know, I wonder how many of you even this past week had an overwhelming sense of fear dominate your day or mark your week. Maybe it was fear over future provision and protection. Maybe it was a fear over relationship, perhaps a loved one, even one of your children. Perhaps it was a fear as you're looking out uh, upon the future. And what the book of Joshua continually tells us is, is faith in God's promised victory, it, it swallows up all of our, our sinful fear. In the same way, like an ocean would swallow up a 40-pound dumbbell that you would drop there in the depths. So does faith in God's promise swallow up all of our fear. And I hope you know that even the gospel of Jesus Christ communicates to us the already announced victory of God in Jesus Christ, as Colossians 2 proclaims, that it was in Jesus Christ that God the Father triumphed over the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places and put them to open shame. That if you belong to Jesus Christ, you too have this command, do not fear. I have already given sin, Satan, and death into the hands of my Son. So this is his reassurance. He says, get up and get going. Go to Gibeon's aid. And so you'll see in the next few verses, they begin this overnight march. It would have been quite strenuous. They were going to go about 15 miles uphill to get to Gibeon as fast as they could. It seems like even overnight. And you'll see in verse 10 and 11, the Lord fights for Israel. He throws their enemies into a panic. They begin to chase them in their route and retreat. And so much so is God's power for Israel. Notice the end of verse 11. Hailstones fall from heaven, and there were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. So this is Israel's renown, and this is God's reassurance, but no doubt the major point and part of the story is what comes now in verse 12 through 14 with Joshua's request. 
Joshua's request. One of the preachers, I'm sorry, professors at Princeton Seminary in the early 20th century was a professor named Dr. Robert Wilson. He was professor of Hebrew and Old Testament at Princeton Seminary, and one of the students that he trained was a man named Donald Gray Barnhouse, who later on in the mid-20th century became one of the most influential preachers in America as he preached the gospel faithfully and clearly from his pulpit at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. And 12 years after Barnhouse graduated from Princeton, he received an invitation to come back and preach at Princeton's chapel. And as he showed up that day to preach at Princeton's chapel, he noticed that seated there in the front row, uh, quite soberly and meekly, was Professor Wilson. And Barnhouse kept on preaching, and after the sermon was done and the service was over, Professor Wilson came up to Barnhouse and said, as the account tells, young man, I came today to hear you preach, and I won't be back again. Now, if you were to say that to someone like me, I would normally assume you mean something negative by the fact that you're not going to be back to hear me preach again. But Professor Wilson actually meant something quite positive. Because he went on to say to Barnhouse, I only come to hear my boys preach once. I want to see whether they are big godders or little godders. And then when I get the answer to that, I know what their ministry is going to be. And what he had heard in Barnhouse's sermon was a big god sermon. And so he said, son, you are going to be okay. Now, what kind of God does Joshua have? Certainly, if you've paid attention to this book by now, you know he has a big God. But what this story is going to further unfold is just how big Yahweh is in fighting for his people. Notice verse 12 through 13. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, sand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Aijalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance over their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven, and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. Now, there's a lot of linguistic interest in this passage that has occupied scholars throughout the centuries, you could make, uh, believe it or not, a pretty compelling case that it wasn't so much Joshua's request for the sun to stay up in the sky as much as it was for the sun to not come up in the sky, that this was a battle that actually was going to be pursued in total pitch darkness. But I do think that it's actually right for us to take the traditional view that Joshua, in that moment of pursuing his enemies in retreat, asked for the sun to be suspended in the sky, as even the latter part of verse 13 says, that it did not set for about a day. But if you look again at the latter part of verse 12, you'll see this kind of interesting geographical reality at play in Joshua's request, and that is this. What he's asking, isn't he, in verse 12, is that the sun would stand still in the east, and that the moon would stand still in the west. From Gibeon to the valley of Aijalon, Israel was going to pursue its enemies. It, almost the request itself paints in this vivid, even moving portrait how the forces of light 
are chasing their enemies into the darkness. How God's children of light are going to remove the enemies of darkness. So famous is this story that is even written down in this mysterious book of Jashar. This is a story really about Joshua's request because it's a story ultimately about prayer. I know a a missionary that spent the vast majority of his time preaching the gospel to Mandarin speakers. And even when he came over to the United States, most of his time was spent planting churches among uh, Chinese Americans. And when he would give out his letters, his updates, his correspondence, he would usually do so with three Bible verses affixed to his letterhead. And it was meant to be almost this simple, logical near syllogism of sorts, because his letterhead began with Joshua 10, 13. The sun stood still. The second verse that was listed there was 2 Kings 6, 6. The iron did float, if you know about the miracle of the floating axe head. And then the third verse was Psalm 48, 14. This God is our God. So think about it again. The sun stood still. The iron did float. This God, that's our God. That's meant to encourage God's people to recognize that what belongs to them is the privilege of faith in the God of might and miracle. And what I want you to see here at the end is how this is a story about prayer, a story that calls to us in two particular ways. First, it calls us to faith, faith in the God of might. If you glance back to verse 10 and 11, Now, what you'll see there is underscored for us with clear scriptural language. The sovereign strength of God. Verse 10, the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel. The text really should say as it continues, he struck them with a great blow at Gibeon. And then you'll notice even the middle of verse 11, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah. Rightly then does the end of verse 14 declare the Lord fought for Israel. I hope you have a a theology of God that allows you in moments of your fight, in moments of your battling, to be like Moses when he crossed through on the Red Sea in Exodus chapter 15, verse 3, sang forth the song that declared, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is. Is his name. If God is for us, who can be against us? Faith in the God of might. But it also calls us, secondly, to fervency in the miracle of prayer. Fervency in the miracle of prayer. And it's right for us to understand the prayer here as nearly miraculous. You see what verse 14 begins with. The point, according to the author of the passage and its spiritual application, is there has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man. Now, you would think, wouldn't you, if you were writing this story, if the sentence began, and there has never been a day like it before or since, when what? The Lord suspended the stars in the sky. When the Lord didn't let the sun come down. When the Lord let let the moon hang in its place. 
when he interrupted the astrological realities and astronomy to such a degree that people have been baffled ever since. Surely that's the miracle. But for this author, it's this. Never before or since has the Lord so listened to the voice of a man. Fervency in the miracle of prayer. I wonder what faith-filled fervency in your prayers marked last week. You know, kids, it's a good thing to even consider if you removed nightly prayers, perhaps your family prays early in the morning too, and then maybe prayers over meals. Kids, was there any time during the past week uh, when you felt your soul welling up with the need to pray to God for the Lord to do something only He could possibly do? And do you even know how it is that you can have confidence that you, like Joshua, might have your prayer heard by God the Father? Because isn't it true that so many centuries into the future that God's one and only beloved Son, Jesus Christ, had His prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane go unanswered. Father, let this cup pass from me. It was there at the cursed cross of Calvary that he hung to fight the battle for God's people in their place against sin, Satan, and death. And that day, the sun wasn't suspended in the sky, but what was suspended in the sky but darkness as he waged war against all the evil and sin that we have ever done. And so he died and was buried and resurrected and ascended to the Lord's place in heaven where the text tells us in the New Testament that he always lives, doesn't he, to what? Make intercession for us. You know, it reminds me of this old pastor that I've spent many years reading that one day late in his life, he wrote down what he called uh, personal reformation. So it was basically this uh, few-page document that uh, meant to uncover his heart's desires as he wanted to grow in Jesus Christ. And uh, one particular uh, section dealt with private prayer. It was titled Reformation in Private Prayer. And he said at one paragraph, he said, I ought to study Christ as intercessor more. He went on to say just a few sentences later, if I could hear Christ praying for me, I wouldn't fear a million enemies. But the difference, I'm sorry, the distance makes no difference whatsoever. He is praying for me. So what is this story here of the battle of the five kings, but a story of prayer? Uh, that points us to a Savior whose name is Jesus Christ, who himself wages continually the good fight on behalf of his people by what? Making intercession for them to the God who hears the prayers of his beloved Son and even his beloved people as they are offered in that same Son. Let's pray together. Father, we do want to know this faith that belongs to us, that we would fear not, that we would always stand strong and be courageous in the midst of the spiritual fight that we find ourselves in, that we would daily take on the armor of your son, Jesus Christ, knowing that the very weapon that belonged to Joshua in the fight with the five kings, that weapon of prayer is ours each and every day. And even when we fall short in our prayerlessness, even when we are forgetful in our supplications, what a comfort it is to know that our praying Savior is making intercession for us. And it's in that very intercession and our mediating King that we trust this night. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.